Thanks, Matthew. Uh, good to be with y'all. Good to be with us. I, I'm always, you know, I'm a guest, but I'm not a guest. Sort of one of those things. I'm glad we get to worship together this morning. How about that? Merry Christmas to you and your families. And this morning we have the, uh, the privilege of looking at uh, Matthew's gospel account of the birth of Christ. Last week, Dr. Rod Mays, one of mine and Matthew's seminary professors, uh, led us through uh, John chapter 1 where he helped us to see that Jesus is the light that shines into the darkness of our lives. Today, this morning, we're going to look at Matthew's account uh, of the birth of Christ, focusing specifically on verse 21, though we'll read uh, the section around that. Now, before we get into the passage, uh, I want to think about it this way for a moment. Um, Shakespeare's Romeo's girlfriend, Juliet, she famously asked the question, what's in a name? And it's a good question. It's a fair question. We ask the same question today, uh, especially when we're going through the process of naming children, which for me felt like a whole lot more pressure than I ever expected it to feel like. You're literally naming a person. You're, that's what their name will be for the rest of their lives. It's a lot of pressure. For us, we have two girls. And uh, you know, for a lot of times in our culture, what we'll do is we'll pick a family name or name a child after someone who means something to us. And so we started down that road with both of our girls. Their middle names are after um, one of their great-grandparents. But their first names, uh, Lucy is just, she's named Lucy because we really like the name Lucy. That was why we named her Lucy. Jordan uh, is actually named after a church. Matthew mentioned we served in, in Utah before I was an RUF campus minister. I was an assistant pastor at a church out west. And we named Jordan after that church. It was Jordan Presbyterian Church. It was a congregation that meant a lot to us, and we had her uh, right after we left there. Um, it also helped that it was just a good name. If the congregation would have been called Tiger Boulevard Presbyterian Church, we probably wouldn't have named her after them. But nevertheless, it, it turns out that what's in a name in the first century in the ancient Near East is often something very, very significant, um, often maybe even more significant sometimes than what's in our names. We have a little brush fire here by the candle. Let me take care of this. We're good. Not a prop, not part of my message, though it may become part of my message. Um, in the ancient Near East, often children's names have really deep and important significance, and that is the case of Jesus. Matthew 1 actually gives us five different names of Jesus, at least. We're not going to go through all of those, but the very first verse of Matthew's gospel when he's setting up the genealogy, he says the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. And later he goes on to, to say, uh, quote Isaiah, they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's five different names. Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, and Emmanuel. Each one has all of this covenant and redemptive history, some re really deep theology. But I want to focus on one name and the one that is given to us in verse 21 that the angel gave to Joseph. So let me read this section, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord, and they will stand forever. Would you pray with me? God, we come into this week, we come into this day, we come into this celebration with um, heavy hearts at times, with excited hearts at times. Lord, you know each person here, you know me, you know all of us and what's on our minds and on our hearts, and I pray that you through your Spirit would speak to each one. Lord, that we would know what it means that you sent your Son into the world, Jesus, who's come to save his people from their sins. I pray that you would give us great encouragement. Awaken our hearts to the good news of the gospel this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You shall call his name Jesus. So what's in this name? It's not just who he is, it's what he does. Uh, and it's not just what he does, it's, it's who he is, Jesus. We look back to passages like this one through the lens of the New Testament, which we should, but we need to remember the context in which these words were given in redemptive history. This messenger came from heaven, spoke to Joseph in this moment, and this moment follows essentially 400 years of silence. 400 years where God's people were looking for a rescuer. The prophets had gone silent. God seemed to go silent, but Israel was waiting, aching, hoping, praying for God to speak once again, to come again, to save them. Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish Christian audience, reminding them of their heritage and, and proving that Jesus is indeed that awaited Messiah. This is part of why he begins with the genealogy, making these really important connections to God's covenant people. Because the prophets have been telling them all along that God will come. God will come and he will rescue you. And he will rescue you not just from outside oppressors, but even from enemies within and I've been looking at a lot of these passages. I've got three quick ones for you where God makes this exact promise over and over again through the prophets. Uh, some quick examples. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people, listen to what he says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Through Ezekiel, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And then Daniel, through Daniel, God says, I will put an end to your sin. I will bring in everlasting righteousness and atone for iniquity. There are so many other passages just like these, but you hear the theme over and over again through God's prophets. I will come, and I will save you, my people, from your sins. 
Let me give you one more example. This is from maybe my favorite chapter of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 3, where God has, there's this courtroom scene, and Zechariah the prophet is sort of a witness to this vision, and God promises to remove these garments of filth and unrighteousness from God's people and to provide them with these new righteous robes. And he says to Joshua, the high priest, who's there standing as a representative of God's people in this moment. He's the high priest. His name is Joshua. Joshua's name means Yahweh saves. And so God says to him, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch, a messianic term, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Do you hear it again? I will come. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. God's people were waiting for that, longing for a rescuer, a savior, a redeemer. They were looking for God to come and save his people from their sins. Dr. Kurt Thompson has quickly become one of my favorite authors and and people to listen to. He's this brilliant psychologist who specializes in interpersonal neurobiology. I can barely say those words, and that's what he does. He's a believer in that field. He's brilliant. He studies the human brain and how the brain helps us to understand uh, so many things about our life. He writes on shame and all these other areas as a Christian in this field. But he talks about the human brain, how it's not fully formed in babies until they begin interacting with others. He has all this science to back this up, but, but those early interactions are so important when the baby is held by someone, when, when she is spoken to, when they're able to open their eyes and see and feel and hear, have contact with another human being. Um, it's a great example, even a biological example of what we all know is true, that we, we long for connection. Uh, we are made to be in relationship with others. But he has this great line that I love, and I use it as much as I can, where he says, Every human being is born into this world looking for someone, looking for them. Every human being is born into this world looking for someone, looking for them. This is true for babies. And can I suggest we, we never grow out of that? We are always looking for someone, looking for us. We long for connection. We long... Uh, for someone to know us. We, we want to be known. We want to be loved. We, we want to be found. This is Israel. Even in their sin and rebellion, they're looking for someone, looking for them, the Messiah to come and rescue them. But God seemed to go silent for a time. And then, then we come to Matthew 1. That's the, that's the whole context and the longing of Israel. And then Matthew writes the book of genealogy, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. In other words, God has spoken once again. And he comes to his people, the people of Abraham, the descendants of David, and he sends his long away to Messiah, and he comes with a name. You shall call his name Jesus Jesus. Our English version is based, my understanding, on the Latin, which is based on the Greek, which has its root in the Hebrew form of the name Joshua. Yeshua, as we said earlier, which means what? Yahweh saves. 
It's in his name. It is the name of Jesus. Yahweh saves. It's not just who he is. It's what he does. It's not just what he does. It's who he is. Jesus comes to save who? His people. What do his people need saving from? Their sins. Jesus, who comes to save his people from their sins. So I, I don't know what you're uh, looking for this Christmas. Um, and I don't mean your wish list, though I'm sure many of you would be happy to share that with me. Kids would be very happy to share with me what's on their wish list. I don't know what your heart is longing for in this season. And even at the end of this year, can we acknowledge it for a minute? Um, even at the end of this year, what is it that you're longing for? I, I've gotten a little nervous recently when I hear people talking about the end of 2020. Like, people are just very, very excited for this year to just be over. And I get it. Um, totally understand that longing. But the reason I get nervous is it's as if, like, New Year's Eve will become a magical evening. And all the difficulty in the world will, will go away at midnight when we roll into 2021. I think... Um, I think that hope may be a little misguided. We're setting ourselves up for failure. But there is a hope that doesn't fail. A hope found swaddled in a manger in that little town of Bethlehem some 2,020 years ago. A hope for which this weary world rejoices, and this world really is weary. This world is so weary. And I think that's what this year has exposed so deeply. Weary from disease and death, weary from unrest and many injustices, weary from political division and weary from wars, weary from strained relationships and addictions and isolation and loneliness and depression and so much more. This world is, is so weary and we are so weary in this world. I've heard so many Christian leaders say over the last several months that perhaps God is using this year to wake us up. To wake us up, and I hope that's true, to wake us up to the problems that are out there, but also to wake us up from the problems that are within us. Remember, Jesus didn't come to just save us from our circumstances, but he came to save us from our sins. He wasn't born to make us happy, but to make us holy or to be happy in him. It's what we ultimately need rescuing from. It's not the hardness of this life, but the hardness of our own hearts. And that's why Jesus came. The light shining into the darkness, the fire growing once again. I'm going to blow out these other two candles just for a moment. I read recently that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and pastor and dissident of the Nazis, he, after he had been arrested for plotting to kill Hitler, and he'd been sentenced to death. Did you know he spent his final Christmas in a prison outside of Berlin? And he said that being in prison was the perfect place to celebrate Christmas. Because your cell is locked, and you're stuck, and you can't open it. You have to be let out from the outside. Someone has to come and open the cell from the outside in to set you free. And that's exactly the story of Christmas. And this is the good news for those of us who know we need a rescuer. If you feel stuck in your sin, if you feel overwhelmed with a sense of shame, 
If you are filled with doubt and fear and you're exhausted from trying to fix it, trying to save yourself and save everyone around you, if you live in that tension, which I think we all do, what Thompson was getting at earlier, that you do want to be known and found, but at the same time, you're so scared to be known and to be found. If you are coming into the end of this year and into Christmas of 2020 tired and frustrated, lonely or scared, and you are like Israel waiting, aching, hoping, praying for a rescuer, I have good news for you. We do have a great need for a Savior, and we have a great Savior for our need. Christmas reminds us that God sent His Son into this world to save his people from their sins. He fulfilled the promise that he made to those people, his people all those years ago, spoken through the prophets. He sent a rescuer to seek and save the lost. He is not silent. He has spoken once again, and he has spoken finally and ultimately in his son, Jesus Christ. Everyone is born into the world looking for someone, looking for them. I would say except for one someone. Jesus is the only person not born into this world looking for someone looking for him. In fact, he was born into this world looking for someones who are not looking for him, who are running from him, and he runs after us. Even when we weren't looking for him, he is looking for us. He is the rescuer who comes in from the outside to open the cell and to set us free. He was born to set thy people free, as we sang just a few minutes ago. And so what does it mean that Jesus saves his people from their sins? Very quickly, theologians have given us a great little alliterated list, and I, as a Presbyterian minister, love a good alliterated list, where they say that what Jesus sets us free in our sins from is the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the very presence of sin. He sets us free from the penalty of sin. In other words, Jesus takes on the penalty for our sins, each one of them when he takes on the cross. He stands as our representative in the great courtroom of God. He is our Joshua, there to represent us as his people. He takes on the penalty so that you and I could be considered righteous based on his righteousness and not our own, so that we might know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So Jesus frees us from the penalty of sin. He frees us from the very power of sin. I think this is one that we don't believe very often in our lives, but we really can fight against sin. We can fight and we can battle. We can name sin in our lives. We can confess it to God and to others, and we can go to battle. Sin no longer has the final word. Jesus has the final word. He has set us free from the power of sin. The Holy Spirit lives within us, the one of comfort and power who allows us to do battle. And finally, he sets us free from the very presence of sin. What does that mean? Well, it means this, that we celebrate Advent, Jesus' first coming, because we know there is another Advent to celebrate. He has come, and he will come again to take all of those who put their faith in him home, home, home. This isn't it, but there is a home coming for all of God's people. He is with us now, our Emmanuel, so that we will be with him forever in his home, the place where there is no more disease, 
No more death, no more division, no more sickness, sorrow, or sadness of any kind. We long for that home, do we not? We long for it, and perhaps for some of you, this year has helped you long for that home even more. Jesus really does come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He has come to set his people free from their sins and also from this world that has been so affected and afflicted by sins. And so this is why we celebrate Christmas. Because Yahweh saves. It's who he is and it's what he does. And so let me close with this invitation. And this may sound... um, This may sound a little cheesy, uh, so just go with it. But yesterday, um, I was thinking a lot about, you know, how do we apply? I've really been showing this for two weeks on this message. Like, how do we apply the Christmas story? It's the Christmas story. How do we apply it? And there are obvious ways, like we should worship, and we should pray, and we should evangelize, and all those things are right and good and true applications uh, from this text and all the others. All Scripture is applicable. But, But I was really struggling with Okay, how do we apply this one this morning? And so yesterday, um, I was working on a few little projects around the house before the game. I was finishing up some little touch-up paint projects that I'd put off for a couple of uh, the year, the whole year I've put off, since the summer at least. And I was trying to finish that up yesterday morning, and I was painting baseboards, and so I was on my knees, and my back was hurting, and I was tired, and I did that for several hours, and then early afternoon, I walked outside, and I really think this was the first time I walked outside at all yesterday up until that point. And it was such a beautiful day. I mean, it was much like this. And I, I, was, <laughs> I was inside the house. I was kind of cold and tired, and I walk out, and the sun's shining like it is now, and I, and I just stood in the driveway. You ever have those moments where you just kind of stand there? And Kelly actually came outside, and she was like, are you on the phone? I was like, no. I'm just standing in the sun. And she said, okay. And then she went back in. And I just stood there, and, and it made me think about the conclusion of a, of a book. My favorite book of this year, probably. I want to make a recommendation. It's not too late to put it on your Christmas list. It's Dane Ortland, pastor, wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly. And it's an amazing book. The subtitle of the book says, It's the Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. It's such an encouraging book. Every chapter is just showing us more and more of the heart of Christ. And so he asked at the end of the book, now this is a spoiler alert. Sorry, I just recommended it. Now I'm going to read you the end. But he, he asked this question at the very end. He says, so how do we apply all of this? How do we apply what we have learned about the heart of Christ? And he gives this illustration as an answer. He says, imagine an Eskimo wins a vacation to a sunny place. And when he arrives at his hotel room, he doesn't step out onto the balcony and wonder, how do I apply this to my life? Instead, he just enjoys it. He basks in it. So what do we do with a Christmas story? Among other good Christian things we can do, perhaps the best thing we can do this week is to stand in the sun. To stand in the sun and to enjoy him. To bask in him. John chapter 1 says the true light was coming into the world. 
And to all who received him, who believed in his name, what name? The name of Jesus, Yahweh saves. To all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children. Born into this world, looking for someone, looking for them. And so the light has come, shined into the darkness and sets us free. So no matter what you're looking for this Christmas, let me invite you to look for Jesus. Because he is already looking for you. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that you sent your son. The light to shine into the darkness, born to set thy people free. We need to be set free. Thank you for saving us, Jesus, from the penalty of our sin, from the power of our sin we can even fight now and one day. One day, when you make all things right, you set us free from the very presence of our sin, and in that we rejoice. So I pray this week for me and for all of us that we would bask in the sun. Our hearts would be so encouraged by the good news of Jesus for sinners like us. We pray it in your name, for your glory, Jesus. Amen.